it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to episode 11 of the Circles Off podcast. Rob Pizzola here, joined by Johnny from Betstamp. And ordinarily off the top, we'd have some banter back and forth. We talk about our, our last week or so, but uh, we do have a guest this week, which um, we've been looking forward to, frankly, for a while. And we, we teased it on the Twitter account earlier this week, asked for some questions, but uh, I'm interested to see where this conversation is going to take us. So we're just going to get right into it right away. We'll now welcome in our second guest ever on the Circles Off podcast, and this is one that I've been looking forward to because um, we welcome in Abnormally Distributed, as he's widely known. Uh, now on Twitter, you can follow him at Abnormally Dist, D-I-S-T, uh, the short form. But why I've sort of been looking uh, forward to this for a while is because um, he emerged onto the gambling Twitter scene, I think during COVID early on last year. Um, and immediately for me, this is a personality that I've never interacted with before, didn't know about. I, I feel like I know a lot of people in the gambling community in general. So there was like this shroud of anonymity, uh, on top of, of this character in general. And then over the course of the last year, I can definitely say that I've, I've learned a lot from this Twitter account in general. Um, and I think there's a lot of personality there as well. So we welcome in of normally dis- distributed. We'll refer to him as AD for the purposes of this interview. AD, how are things going? Great. And thank you for the opportunity for me to explain how Donald Trump can still win the 2020 election. It's really <laughs> very nice of you. That's uh, right. That was a different podcast with someone else. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, normal, normally I, I, I don't like to lead with, bet, you know, background and, and betting history and things like that in general, because for, I guess, a lot of the podcast guests, we kind of already know their background stories. But for you, uh, I think, most of us don't. Uh, I, I've read some old uh, forum posts that I think have come from you in the past, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. So, for those that aren't, you know, familiar with you altogether, I guess what is your betting history? How did you you get involved in this industry? Uh, how long ago does that date back? Yeah, so there's a I guess poker forum two plus two, and they had a sports betting sub forum. So that's where I sort of worked on a lot, um, which is kind of interesting because I never played poker. But my roommate in college was really into poker and he was always on the website. And so it's kind of like where it became nothing. And it was it's interesting because like it was a big community, but now it's really small, obviously, because message boards have died. You know, they're not really relevant anymore, unfortunately. Um, so it sort of became one of those things where like after a while, we were just sort of talking like two people to each other. And I was like, this kind of boring. So then it's like Twitter. And I didn't even know there was a whole gambling Twitter type thing. So, <laughs> you know, went on to there. But um terms of starting betting i think it was in college around that time so um went to school got math degree statistics degree and i was going to be a big wall shop wall street superstar type thing and uh didn't really work out mostly because you know it's way too high pressure too many you know like they value like 19 hour work days and not sleeping and that seems really boring so uh when you don't want to get a job what do you do you go back to school so went to grad school Got a PhD in stats, but um, 
sort of what happened was when you get a PhD, there's like two ways you can go. You can go into like pharma with a stats PhD or you can go into academia. And I think one of the best ways to get a job is to get these fellowships from the National Science Foundation. So I got one of them and they sent me to Antarctica. So <laughs> I had to spend two years in Antarctica. And the idea was we were sort of using this. So my advisor was a machine learning expert. Like he worked on that Watson from IBM and all these other things. So we were trying to use machine learning to model lakes in Antarctica. So the sort of what I understood it was is that, um, you know, ice shelves break off and there's something you can predict them. Like they form water on top of glaciers first and there's ways to predict it using machine learning. But the problem was when I got there, no one had any of the data. So I basically just sat in a room and did nothing for like nine months. So I wrote my dissertation, everything was great. And they don't let you spend more than nine months continuous there because they think like isolation would be bad. So then went to Argentina for some time and I was like, you know, I'm gonna use the second year to build some sports betting models. So collected all this data in the three months before I went back. And then I was able to use like the government supercomputers, which at the time were it's like 2004, 2005, um, to run all these models and build all these machine learning functions in Python. Cause like none of these things that people use now really existed. So like now if you wanna run a machine learning model, you can just click a button, you know, or you can just run some code that someone else wrote. So like at this time, NumPy wasn't even out, which is a very popular, um, package in Python, there was called something else, but like, so having to go through and write all these functions from scratch and so forth, I think really gave me a good understanding of the mathematics and the stuff behind it. Yeah. Did, did you have immediate success in sports betting? So when you first started this, was that something that right away you're like, okay, I'm onto something and I can make something large out of this? Or I, I'm only asking because from, from my experience, and this is a personal experience for me where I, I lost very early in my sports betting career, um, a lot of money, I would say. And, and I think that's kind of like the general path that a lot of people follow. It's losing at first, learning through experience, and then uh, eventually turning that into some sort of profit. How, how did you find that in the early going? So I think, you know, I think I got very lucky looking back in the sense that like I didn't really lose any money. So luckily that fellowship I got paid me about $105,000, which I couldn't spend any of it because, you know, I'm getting my food paid for and housing. So like I had an instant bankroll and I feel like that was really good. And then after defended dissertation came back, the way sort of academia works is you apply for a job in November and then they interview in February for the job in the next September. So I ended up getting like a tenure track teaching position. I was like, cool, I have seven months. Let me see if I can use these models to make money. And I was basically spending every night at the Meadowlands, which is a racetrack in Northern New Jersey, which is like one of the, used to be one of the premier harness tracks. And like at the time, I think harness racing was more degenerate in that like there weren't that many ways to gamble. So that was really, really easy to beat it in the sense that like there was people who were making a living at it by just like looking at a piece of paper and, you know, using maybe more qualitative analysis. So ran really good there. And then I sort of convinced myself when April came, I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to go to Vegas and live there until I start my job in, you know, late August and probably doing the wrong thing, like betting 10% of your net worth on one game because you're showing like a 20% edge, which like at the time I thought was possible, but now I'm realizing like, wow, I just got really, really lucky. So like, I think it was just like one of those heaters that just happened in the beginning and it ended up being really good because then at the end of the summer, I had like $250,000, which was really nice, you know, at the time. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go start my job now and I could take this $250,000. Maybe I'll do some gambling on the side as a you know hobby. But I was like, oh, perfectly. If I have money for a down payment for a house, I can 
you know, live comfortably and I can work towards tenure and not have to worry about money and blah, blah, blah. And then I got to my job and it was like the worst thing ever. So like, you know, I had an office and it had a window, but it was like a small window. It was like cinder block walls. Everything was painted white. The walls are painted like hospital color gray. And like the second I walk in, someone's like, did you see the email I sent you? Like not even hello. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And it's like, we've been sending you emails all summer. I'm like, yeah, but you're not paying me until you know, September. Why would I check my email? And they're like, yeah, you should set up your email on your phone. Like I didn't even have a smartphone. And then I had to sit in like two days of just nonstop meetings about like what, you know, like work and set up your health insurance and just all these seminars. And I was like lying in my hotel room and I was like, this is the most boring thing ever. I couldn't do this for 30 years. So sort of came up with a little plan. Um, so it was like around the end of August and NFL preseason was still happening. And one of the things I had read was uh, Stanford Wong's book, uh, Sharp Sports Betting. And one of the chapters has to do with the infamous Wong teasers, the basic strategy teasers. And I think that's one of the things that people really misinterpret because they just take it as like, you can only tease these subsets as being profitable. And so I stayed up that whole night. It was like a Tuesday night. I stayed up the entire night and I pulled all the NFL preseason data for week four for like 10 or 15 years. I forget whatever I could find online. Right. And if anyone watches NFL preseason week four, they know basically the game is run up the middle three times punt, run up the middle three times punt, run up three times punt. Every over under is like 32, like 35 and every spread is three. So in my ingenious, which at the time was probably really stupid. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go and just take every dollar I have and try to unload it on teasers for this. So like I had about like half my money online and offshore books and like half in cash. So that Wednesday I went to my meeting and I was like, you know what, I'm going to fly Vegas, flew to Vegas and NFL preseason started like Thursday and Friday. So I just tried to unload everything on like every combination, eight shoes two. So I picked eight teams that I thought I'm going to tease. And it was incorrect in the sense that, like, I'm not teasing, like, I was teasing plus fours and plus fives and plus sixes. And, like, if you read the book, that's obviously bad. But the idea is if the total is 32 and you're getting plus 11, fuck, maybe that would be profitable. And, like, to this point, I don't know if it was a good idea or bad. But essentially, so I picked eight teams and I just went through every combination, like, eight choose eight, eight choose seven, eight choose six, and just somehow got, like, 212 or $213,000 down. On teasers at really good odds because this is 2006 when you can get like plus 100 on two teams, plus 180 on three teams, and so forth. And then Thursday happened and they all won. But up to that point, there were still some that were pending on Friday. So then I was like, and I was really surprised like none of the books banned me except for Sports Interaction, which, if anyone's been around for a long time, it's this really, really square book that like was amazing. It's like uh, metallic for people who are getting into the game now, basically. Um, so I was like, this is amazing. I'm just going to take all the money I won and roll it over again and just do like, I think there was three teams I had on Friday. I was like, I'll just three, choose two, three, choose three, everything. And got dumb lucky at the end of the week, everything won. And then I'm like, you know, I'm not going back to my job. Screw it. Um, so I ended up like having instant bankroll of like eight, $900,000. forget the total amount just off like some dumb gamble. And it's interesting because like I was listening to a different person, uh, Kerala up, which everyone knows the famous basketball guy. And like he sort of did the same thing with the NBA thing where it's like he went all in on the Lakers. And it's always like I always feel like a lot of people, there's that moment where they it's like, am I going to grind on a small bankroll forever? And then maybe in 10 years I can make a living on this or am I just going to YOLO it and hope it works out? And it just sort of worked out. So and then that was also the NFL year where every teaser hit 
instantly to the point where books started making it minus 110 and minus 120 and shading against teaser. So just one of those like right moments that worked out and then it afforded the time to build models that were better. It's really fascinating. I mean, it's a really interesting story. I think you're right. Um, and in terms of uh, betters come to that point where it's a decision of like, am I going to keep grinding and building this bankroll or am I going to take some shots now? Uh, and, and I guess a lot of it is just the risk appetite with the individual person. But it sounds like from your perspective, um, you would consider yourself a someone with a very high risk appetite. It's also age too. So, you know, I had a PhD in stats, which I mean, is not a license to print money, but you can get a job like, you know, and also like I knew a lot of people who could help me get jobs and I already had a job, which was like, hey, you put in your six years, you get tenure and you're basically set for life type job. So it's more like didn't really have anything to lose. Like, OK, if I lose the two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, my bankroll I had at the point, that's going to suck, but it's not going to end my life type thing. Right. Versus like if I'm that age and I have a wife and a kid's obviously not going to do that. Right. So that's sort of, I think something that's interesting is that like now that I'm older and, you know, money is not really an issue. And it's interesting because like, okay, money's not an issue. Why not just go crazy betting a million dollars and everything, but it's like, there's no point. It's like diminishing returns type thing where mm -hmm. it's like, okay, you could do this, but why would you do this? It doesn't really make any sense. Um, so like, why am I going to blow up and ruin my life over something when it's like, you make good money now, what's the big deal? Right. Okay, so so talk to us a little bit about, I guess, the evolution because I mean, you started off betting, frankly, Wong teasers ran really hot. You know, your words, not mine, for for the course of pretty much half a year or a year of NFL, build up a pretty big bankroll, and now you're posting NASCAR edges to your Twitter account, uh, golf head to heads. I mean, I've seen like NASCAR truck series, which I go to look for spots to bet truck series. And I can barely even find some. So obviously you've kind of expanded into something completely different. I, I guess along the way, how, how did that expansion happen? Were you getting bored of betting certain things? Did you start losing your edge? Did you just start saying, you know, I can take on more? How, how does that happen? Yep. So all the positive things I said before, then the problem was like, so I was able to use the entire NFL season to like refine my baseball model, which won, but I don't think was profitable, you know, in the sense that like, Hey, it worked out, but it was really bad. Um, and then I was all ready to start out the new year, 2007. And then the unlawful gaming act happened and like every offshore started leaving the industry. So like uh, pinnacle left matchbook was still here, but it had liquidity issues at the time, you know, because for people who know, like Matchbook was originally basically funded by like the Greek who also left as well. And it was funded by Bookmaker and Pinnacle and so forth. So like a lot of their markets were seeded by offshore companies and they all just left like within a span of two weeks. So in my idea, I was like, you know what? What I'm going to do is I'm going to go move to Montana on the border of Montana and Canada and get a Canadian cell phone. And it was able to pick up Canadian cell phone like towers because it was like literally right on the border. Like you can look out my window and see Canada and I was able to use Pinnacle. So, mm. but the problem was I was living like Unabomber style in a cabin <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. And it was great. Like I was, I went and bought like a hundred pounds of frozen vegetables and like rice and there was a place you can fish and get food, like pretty nice life, but also very isolationist. And like, I just basically spent two years there refining models, building models. And that's when like, sorry, get really big on two plus two. Cause like anything 
it's always weird because you could post like really informational stuff. Like there was this guy in SBR forum, Gantro, who always posted this great stuff. And it would always go like overlooked, except by the people who are really interested in betting. The way to get really popular is just post picks. So like, I would just post all these MLB picks and people would like start talking and, you know, I'd build like a community with people that way and be able to get information and learn about how to beat these sports better and so forth. So yeah, basically I just spent like two years trying to model baseball, basketball and build all these models and it went really, really good. And then after two years, then they sort of, I think the World Sports Exchange guy got arrested, WSEX, if anyone remembers that sports book. And then all of a sudden, Pinnacle and other books started to be more strict about making sure that people actually lived outside the United States. And that became like sort of a downfall where it was like, oh, no, what do you do now? So I think maybe just isolating myself, I was able to spend a lot of time building models, probably for mental health, not the best thing ever. And also like grinding through like $2 million and, um, you know, betting in a year, probably not the smartest thing to do. But I felt like in terms of understanding betting and getting sports and so forth it was really beneficial and so those ideas that i built in those two years still sort of expand and then i think one of the things is you just get really bored like mm -hmm. baseball betting in 15 years and it's just extremely boring like i know what's going you know like you know what's going on you just click buttons and you make adjustments and you know what to look at and it's just like seems like a tedious job so um then one person on the two plus two forums, which his name's Iowa. He's, I don't want to give out his other name because he got mad at me once because I did that. Um, but he's actually, I, really I, I think a lot of us have connected the dots on, on that one so far. Yes. AD. Yeah. yeah. So he was really into golf and he hates me for some reason. So I decided to learn golf to just post golf picks and, you know, make him angry and you know, <laughs> he still hates me. So it worked out. Okay. So that's how I got into golf. And then the NASCAR thing was like, well, what, other sports are there to bet, you know? And it's interesting because like the first time I tried NASCAR, it went so horribly. People thought I was purposely posting the other side in order to, you know, get the lines to move to get more value, but it was just horrendous. And I think it's one of the people issues with modeling is that you sort of get an ego sometimes where you think like, if I just get enough data, I can solve this. And I think one of the big problems was the data in NASCAR is very suspect. It's not good. And it really relies a lot on qualitative issues that like I didn't understand because I don't watch didn't watch a sport. So like it was one of those things like that was my first like big failure in modeling. Because up to that point, like everything just worked out nicely, you know, because like baseball, there's like a million variables that you can download for free. Um, basketball, it's really easy to get like play by play data. And then Dean Oliver wrote that book, which basically solved basketball like 20 years ago. You know, so like there's not there wasn't that big issues. And this was like the first one that was really a big thing. So um, yeah, and I think, you know, failing, you learn a lot too. So I had a question for you, AD. Yeah. Uh, first off, incredible story on the, uh, on the come up. Um, so my question is, it seems like you did a lot of this stuff solo. Uh, you mentioned obviously like living in isolation, things like that. Um, personally, I, I've worked with a partner and I've always seen a lot of people work either in a group uh, or with a partner mainly you know not even because you can't do the work yourself but it just takes off a lot of the the stresses that come along with this, this industry it's so like burnout or like you know going through a bad run going through different things uh did you ever work with a partner or or have you ever worked in like with groups and stuff like this or has it always been a solo job uh, no it's always been a solo job but it's interesting because like one of the things we did on the two plus two forums is we created some it was a joke we were making fun of people but the crowdsource syndicate 
And it was just more like, hey, people post ideas in, in the open forum, which is probably a stupid idea because I think we killed like the strikeout markets when bookmakers started opening them because, you know, we're just posting all the lines and like within five minutes they were all gone. Um, and because then like people would just lurk and, you know, wait for the players or whatnot. But um, yeah, more just like that. I think like now talking to people on Slack. And I feel like sometimes, you know, not working directly like, hey, we're going to get on a Skype call or we're going to text and we're going to, you know, you're going to handle this and I'll handle this. But more like throwing ideas out into the public and then letting people make fun of them and then trying to understand why they're making fun of them, I think is a really sort of important key thing. So like um, in the beginning, uh, Rob mentioned, like you post these on Twitter, the NASCAR stuff. And that's because that was like my resurgence to trying to solve NASCAR. And like, I just wanted to make it public. So, and then when I did, people were like, you're stupid because of this, this, this. And then it's sort of processing like, okay, is this person just a troll or joking, right? Or is there some validity to what they're saying? Because no one ever is like direct, like this is a bad pick because X, Y, Z, you know, type thing. So I feel like sometimes making things public and letting people comment and talk to them is like sort of a good method to collaborate without directly collaborating um, versus just like, you know, Hey, I'm talking to this person. And I think the other benefit too is you can get multiple viewpoints. So I don't know when you work with one person, do you bring in like outside consultants to like, hey, can you look over this and tell us what you're thinking, or do you have like a smaller group? Or yeah, I think a lot of that's interesting. I I think a lot of that can can be valuable for for people who are listening because it's certainly valuable to myself. Um, and one of the things. Um, you know, this is a personal issue of mine, but I see it happen all the time, especially in the gambling Twitter community, but I've been on forums in the past as well. And it happens there and it's people just dismissing ideas that come from others. Um, and, and there's, it's like this, this ego, I think with the sports better where I know everything and this is an idiotic idea. I'm not going to follow up on it. Uh, whereas it sounds like you were using Twitter forums as kind of like an avenue to improve your craft and, and gather ideas. Um, I, I think the vast majority of people are using it in the complete opposite, uh, which is more so to validate their own opinions or say, just shit on people who don't agree with them in general. Yeah, I think this is something I wanted to ask you too, uh, Rob, is that like, I know you do the Periscope thing. I watch it, you know, I have it on the background when I'm looking at other things and you give like rationale for your picks. But of the people like that are watching, how many do you think just like get to the picks versus actually trying to understand your rationale? And sometimes I feel like with the rationale, people are just looking for confirmation bias. Like, I believe this or I don't believe this. So you're wrong type thing versus like you said that actually like, OK, he's saying this. Let me try to understand why he's saying this. And then maybe I can get data to conflict him or I can get data to support him. Right. Um, type thing. Yeah, I, I think the. I think sadly, the majority of people are only tuning in for the picks, regardless of how many times I say that I don't expect to beat the NFL market, you know, on a Sunday, a couple hours before game time. I know that I did this year and I did last year. Uh, I'm not sure whether I, I really have an edge over that market or not. Um, it, it's the periscopes have always been a personal struggle for me just in general, because I, I, I hate to say this, but like a lot of the rationale is, is kind of bullshit. Like I, I could do a periscope in one minute and say, this is my number on the game. And that's why I bet the game. Um, everything else is kind of fluff. And, and I, I mean, it's stuff that goes through my head and it's, pro it's, it's in my models as well, but it's, uh, I think like it encourages people a little bit too much to, 
to potentially look at things that don't matter. Um, I don't know. It's, I, I've always felt that way, but it, I get messages. I get DMs on a Sunday night saying like, thanks for the, the Cowboys pick today. And I'll, I'll respond and be like, I, I didn't pick the Cowboys today. Like I said, I, I bet the Cowboys earlier in the week, but I wouldn't bet them today. And they'll respond like, oh, you seemed really passionate about it. So I, I rode with it anyways. And that's like one of the, that's just what we're reaching in the point uh, of, of like critical mass of betting. Well, we're not even close to critical mass in general, but people are just looking for picks. And um, I don't know if I'm going to do the Periscope next year. I really don't because um, I think it actually, it, it might potentially do more harm than good for people. There, there are some people that, will look at my process and they might learn things from that. But I do think that the majority are just, um, like I said, logging on to Betstamp to see what picks I've locked in or just quickly fast forwarding through I'm say- what I'm saying to, to get to the picks or the recap at the end, something like that. Yeah, it's interesting too, because, you know, there's a big thing in the gambling Twitter sphere right now about this idea of like info touts, right? So like, obviously, touts are interesting because like you know it's not the couple of bad apples there's a lot of bad apples but there are good people right and it's like well a lot of being a good tout is performance art like that's why vegas dave is really popular because he's a performance artist he's not a good picker right uh steve stevens along those lines and it's interesting because like i do listen to some podcasts so like there's one for nascar i listen to race for the prize and he's a really interesting guy and like i don't agree with everything he says but like I listen to it and I get ideas and then I'm like, why would he be saying this and being dismissive? But then like in the comments, everyone like, just get to the picks, get to the picks, get to the picks, right? Like no one wants to hear the rationale part. And especially now with there's like 97 podcasts for every sport, you know, it's sort of the same idea here is that like, could there be a space for this? But like, there are good info touty places, but like I found a lot of them end up just end up catering to the, here's just the picks because the people don't want the the information thing. And I'm like, uh, established to run is another one for NFL that puts out some really, really good material that has been really informative and helped me uh, bet NFL. Right. And it's like, but then I found in the second year, they shifted a lot more towards just like, here's some projections and here's some data, data, data with like not accompanying text because, you know, they've got to reach a bigger market and a lot of people don't want that. So yeah, it's an interesting thing because like, I think you do a good job and it's like, but in order to be successful, is that the right path? Right. In the sense that like you could just blow up by just going on a really hot heater and then getting 10,000 followers because you ran really hot in NFL for three weeks. Right. Versus like give good information every week and then you'll get like a thousand extra by the end of the semester or year. Well, what do you think? What do you think of this then AD? Because so from what I can see, um, the industry, it's exactly what you mentioned. Like it's people do give out good content uh, to sift through that content. It's obviously very difficult. And then uh, at the end of the day, those people are ultimately going to shift if they want to grow their platform slash whatever they're following, they're going to have to shift to eventually just giving out simple content like picks, because that's in this market right now, what gets the clicks and what gets the views. And, and I mean, it's across the board. Like you'll see basically what action network puts out. It's going to be like, here's your top five Oscars picks. And there's no value in there in that, in that article, but people are still going to click it because they might want an Oscars pick and they think there might be value. So what I was going to ask you is, do you see a way moving forward in this industry where betting education and something like, um, you know, process and theory and stuff like that comes in um, in a more prevalent way with the expansion? And I'm asking you because, again, you have that stats background. 
Um, and throughout the years, like you mentioned, you know, basically being in isolation, learning from forums, learning from people giving out content. If there is a content shift to picks only, that then stunts the growth of people who can actually come up and do it in, in the industry uh, and learn that way. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting because like, I don't think people understand the time that it takes to do these certain things. So like, I think a lot of people have a misconception that like, once you build a model, you click a button and it gives you all the lines and you just click a button and embed it. And then you spend five minutes and your day is done and you can go do whatever you want the rest of the day. But like, I feel like the model is usually the first place you start. So like when I run my golf model, for example, I'll run it on Sunday night and then I'll spend like seven, eight hours throughout Monday looking at charts that I generate, looking at graphs, really digging into the data to make sure like what is going on here. And it's a laborious process. And a lot of it involves making judgment calls and all these other lines. And I feel like a lot of people just, you know, don't want to do that. Or like uh, Rob said earlier, they just sort of look for one key nugget and they latch onto that. And they're like, that's why I'm betting the Cowboys, right? So I feel like it's tough because, you know, if I had a job and family and kids and all these other things, I don't think you have time to be uh, successful better in the sense that like you could originate markets or you can be betting into bookmaker or pinnacle near close and actually have value associated with it so yeah it's tough so i feel like also from being in this for like 15 16 years you see a lot of cyclical things so like when offshores became really big the same exact things that's happening right now like arbitrage sites start popping up and they pretend like they solved betting because you can make arbs and i'm like there was a forum of mothers 12 years ago who were arbing on pinnacle and their spare time like you know what i mean like this is not a new innovative thing or like middling so i feel like and then that's when all those books started coming out, like King Yao's book, um, Justin Sevens and so forth. And then there was a little gap because it was really hard to bet. And now that it's becoming legal, you're seeing like almost the same repeat of stuff. And I think people just, you know, want the picks. And then it's like, um, let's say for some reason you become tout and you run really hot. Well, how long is your shelf life before they move on to someone else? Like how many losing picks, right? So I don't, I personally don't think I would subscribe to an info touties website if I found value in it, but I don't think it's a sustainable business model because either you're going to give out information that's going to hurt your betting edge, which is going to end up costing more money in the long run, or you're just not going to attract enough people because I don't think enough people are interested enough in doing these types of things. So maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's an interesting viewpoint. Uh, I mean, I've seen your commentary around the platform that that Rufus and Captain Jack are, are launching. Um, and, and I know that when they first told me about the idea, my, my initial response to them was, I think this is very niche, like in our heads, because we're, um, in a set, I mean, professional betters, there's this idea about, of like educating people and, you know, we can really spend some time and people can figure this stuff out, but I'm actually, I'm more convinced now than ever that people just don't care. Uh, and it's sad for me to say that, but I, I ran a tote service for a year uh, when I was with Prediction Machine. And I really tried to, I say this all the time, but quote unquote, run a tote service the right way. Uh, I got rid of like short term trends uh, in a sense to promote to promote the site. Everything was long term. But one of the things that I, I we had on site was a, a tool that would give you updated, you know, Kelly stake sizes based off of the way that the lines moved on a game. Uh, but I very quickly learned that people had no appetite for that whatsoever. It was, 
you know, how could you recommend that I bet the Yankees this morning? And now you're telling me the Yankees are not a play anymore. And it's, well, the line moved. And, and the reality is that for 95% of people, maybe even more than that, they don't care. It's like, just give me the pick. Who is going to win? That tool like just didn't get used. There was no traffic to that site, that section of the site. And it's a sad reality. And I, I mean, I will continue to fight the battle on a personal level. I posted some stuff to Twitter earlier this week about you know Jonathan Coachman um, and, and filming a DraftKings video where he recommended or he had his partner recommend a wager without there even being a line on that game or, or on that that fight. And you know, seeing the the a lot of the responses to that really disillusioned me in general. People that will defend that because they don't know any better and. Uh, and I don't think that, I think there's a large segment of the population that's just never going to know any better, unfortunately. And I feel also there's like a subset of people who think that they want to do this and then they realize how much work it is. So a related example is in one of those threads on 2 plus 2, people some, for some reason got really interested in NHL face-offs. I have no idea why, but this became like a prop that people were talking about. So what I did is I went and wrote like scripts for everybody and I even just gave them the raw data. I was like, here's how you can get all the data from the NHL API. You can even build your own play-by-play NHL database if you want using the script. And by the way, here is a CSV file with everything you need, like every player, every goal, every shot, everything for the last X amount of years. And also I wrote an R Shiny app, which you can use. And here is the source code for the R Shiny app. And here's how you can import it. And it must have, I must have spent like eight hours because I'm an idiot, like, you know, writing up these tutorials on how people can use it. And legit, like, because I posted it on the website that I host and like six people from the thread accessed it. But then I got like 20 different people asking me, so what are your NHL face-off picks for the day? Right. I was like, yeah. And even I went through the idea of like, well, we can have two different models. We can have a model that incorporates hand side, you know, whether or not they're left-handed or right-handed. We have a no-hand model. We can have something that's more Bayesian. And I laid out all three models and how you can build them and all these things. Like, no one cared. Like they just care that like, are you picking Detroit to win the face off today or something? You know, like, and I was like, wow. And after that, I sort of shifted my thinking that like, I've given away people like every line move from Pinnacle for like the last 20 years. I have a CSV. I'll give it to you. I don't care. But like, I think people want the data, but then they just don't know what to do with it or like make sense of it or like, or they realize that like, oh shoot, uh, this is too overwhelming. I'm not going to know how to deal with this type of situations. So yeah, it's a, blurry line but i'm guessing like you know there are some people who probably got their start through these things you know and became successful so stuff do you cater to the one percent who would value from this or do you just cater to the 99 percent who just will you know leave you the second you go on a bad streak so i've always had the rationale of like um keep in mind obviously gambling wasn't fully regulated in the u.s so when it was popular in the u.s um back in the day, essentially what happened was people all sign up and the books went nuts and said, Hey, we're going to sign up all these people and let's get, you know, our cost per acquisition down. Let's get all these users. And eventually what happened was like, you know, obviously people lost money. Um, some stuck around and, you know, a very small percentage of them, I'm sure, uh, turned into winners and a very small percentage of them turned into, you know, betters who stuck around and maybe just broke even and did it for the fun and stuff like that. But ultimately, the people like people only have so much money uh, to lose. And depositing into a sports book, let's say you deposit five hundred dollars, you lose that on the first week. Uh, you may never deposit again. A large percentage of people will not because you know it's not fun. So if you're gonna 
be a sports book eventually after you turn through and i'm not talking this year because there's still tons of states that aren't even regulated yet but as the market matures and as people uh, essentially as a sports book run out of you know new people to sign up uh, eventually my opinion is i think there has to be a market for some people to get better and not necessarily you know make like you're, you're mentioning making you know, 800K your first year, you know, making millions from this. I'm not talking about that, but I'm saying people who can survive um, as a better bet every week, maybe bet on the NFL, bet on some NBA playoffs, bet on some stuff, break even, win a little one year, lose a little the next year and have fun doing it. Otherwise the industry, you know, can't be sustained if you constantly have to sign up new betters. Yeah, especially too, like you see, um, well, the Euro style books, and anytime anyone sort of goes on a low streak, they just immediately cut their limits and or ban them. Like, and they say we don't ban them, but when you cut their limits to one dollar or two dollars, I mean, it's the same exact thing, right? Yeah, and you're saying like that is, it's interesting because like I don't think that is a sustainable model either. You know that like like you said, eventually these people that are losing money are going to run out of money, or they're going to go on to the next big thing, right? Like um, that they're interested in, and then how could they? Do you think? Are you thinking that like eventually all the people that lost money will just go away or they're just going to keep coming back eventually or well what i was thinking was some of them will go away and never come back but there has to be a percentage that want to learn and want to do this the right way because at the end of the day i've always said this like um i'm not a gambler at all i'm i hate gambling i never go to the casino i'll never place a bet that i don't think i have an edge on that i think i'm going to win at so i don't like gambling at all i just like winning money right so Winning money is fun. Losing money is actually not fun at all. So how many times I'm saying like, how many times can you go deposit into a sports book, lose all your balance and keep coming back? Like where, at what point, maybe it's next year, maybe three years from now. Like, I just think at some point there has to be a bigger market for, you know, education and sustaining, um, like sustaining basically your longevity at the sports book. But maybe it's just a, you know, maybe I'm short-sighted here. Well, sports fans are, 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 It's tough because I don't actually know that it's necessarily sports betters in general, but the reality is one, I don't think a lot of people are willing to admit to themselves that they lose. Like for, for a lot of people, they've, they convince themselves that they are winning in the long run, even when they are constantly losing. So if you are unaware that you are a long-term loser, you're just going to keep betting. And I, I don't know that we reach the point where, where there's enough of the population that's aware of, hey, I'm losing this much money on an annual basis. I'm going to stop doing this. Uh, and by that point, it's potentially an addiction where it, it turns into a problem gaming issue. So I, I don't know where it's going to go necessarily, but even, you know, we, we had, let's, let's not kid ourselves here. Prior to regulation happening in the US, people are still betting. Like it's obviously blowing up at scale now because it's it's not taboo anymore. But a lot of these people were betting beforehand anyways and contributing to offshores and, and their local bookies, PPHs, whatever. So I, I'm not I'm not sure we ever reach that point where it's just like a mass exodus from the industri- industry um, because the reality is, for one, I think people find it entertaining. So they're willing to lose the money for entertainment. And f- number two, I'm just not convinced that in the long run, there's enough people who are realizing how much money they're actually losing. I wonder too, if like a good analogy would be the DFS thing too, where if you look at when DFS started, there was probably people who like, you know, I'll just click my favorite players and lose and lose and lose and lose. 
And eventually I think they had to evolve to either subscribing to a Tao-ish website. And now, like, if you look at the DFS landscape, like it's basically multi-mass entering using optimizer tools, using projections. Like, I feel like me, I don't know if it's possible for sports betting to go in a similar direction where like all the super casuals, maybe they drop one DFS lineup or they'll bet like a prop or one game a week. And it's just really driven by like, these people just using tools and they're just using one site's projection versus another and clicking a button with 150 lineups and hoping it works out. And then they'll pay the rake this month and lose. And then next month they'll win. And they think in the long term it's all going to sort of work out. Yeah. So I don't know if that would translate to sports betting where eventually like people will use a tool like you developed for that Kelly calculator. And it's like, okay, Rob might be on the Yankees and then uh, Johnny would be on the other side. Right. And it works out because they both got value because the line right. moved enough, right? Type thing. Yeah, be interesting. That, that's interesting for sure. Uh, I, I you mentioned DFS. I'm i I've seen you post about DFS in the past before. I think we had a conversation about NASCAR DFS at, at some point privately as well. Um, do you like? Are you finding a, a significant edge in in the DFS space right now? Or are you doing it more for fun? Yeah. So normally, what happened with DFS was this whole COVID thing happened and life got really boring. So I decided, Hey, when I try this, so, you know, I spend a lot of time in Vegas, but also a resident of a different state. So it kind of works out nicely um, that I can play there because it's banned in uh, Nevada, but um, in more of the niche sports, like champions tour golf showdown advantage, Euro golf, you know, like, but I don't really spend the time doing the grinding, like NBA day to day, MLB day to day. It's more just like, hey, jump in with NASCAR. And I feel like there's a big advantage there because there are a lot of like tools and touts and you just sort of look at their projections and you're like, what's going on? And I think it's interesting because NASCAR is in a weird transition stage where the way it used to work was they'd have practice and people's cars would qualify based on their practice results, right? They do a qualifying result. And normally what happened is every week someone would crash in qualifying. And there'd be an obvious pick. And then you just play the guy whose car was the best in practice and qualifying. And it was like really, really easy for touts to be NASCAR touts because there were such obvious plays every week. And now that there's no practice, it's a little harder because you need to use some more advanced statistics to find out. So the edge, I feel like in the last year has really gone through the roof and it's been really profitable. So I'll just keep clicking buttons and hoping it works out. That's uh, until, you know, until things go back and yeah. So I think there is still value, but you know, in things like NBA, it's really weird because like first place, the difference between first place and not cashing is like two points, like one basket. It's like so optimized to the point where it's ridiculous and everyone knows the value play and all this stuff. So, I mean, I, I experienced that firsthand. I, I left a full-time job not to pursue sports betting, but to pursue DFS full-time. Um, and I, this was probably five or six years ago now where I had major success in the early going of DFS. And then I noticed very quickly how things sharpened up and just everybody ended up being on the same players. And it basically came down to like one or two different players in a lineup that was going to decide your night um, to the point where like the edge just essentially eroded, I think, over the course of maybe three to six months. And that's kind of how I got started in sports betting. And uh, I still play DFS, but more with the expectation of losing in the long run and just trying to win a lottery ticket essentially. Um, so I was just, I was just curious if, if the market um, is still like that um, or, or whether you're noticing differences and it's, it sounds like with the more niche sports, especially that you can really gain an advantage there. And especially 
like you said, lottery tickets. Interesting because like I don't play the the like ten dollar hundred k to first because the way they've set it up now, it's like forty percent of the prize pool goes to first place and like sixty percent goes to top ten, and you're competing with a hundred thousand people. So you can literally be in the point zero zero one percent and just not make any money, right? Um, so I focus more on the higher stakes cash games, and they have much lower rakes. So the higher stakes, like thousand above, is like five point five percent rake versus eighteen percent at the lower stakes. So yeah, I always feel like they're selling more of a lottery ticket in the lower stakes. But at the higher stakes, I think it's more game theory ish because like I know what people are going to play, and I might not think that's a good play, but I might just want to play that person to block, you know, this person here type thing, even though I think it's a bad play there's still a chance that like this could screw me. So I'll block. So I feel like maybe at the higher, smaller entry or smaller amount of people thing, it's a little more meta than just like playing the best place. I think. Question for you. This will, could be an interesting uh, discussion for the listeners here. So you have, you mentioned like 18% rake in the smaller games. So you're talking like five, $10 contests uh, that yep. you could enter. And then you're more playing like thousand and above. So in the multi thousand competitions, you're at a 5% rake. In those competitions, in theory, people who are betting more money are typically going to be sharper. You're probably going to run into people who are not just taking it lightly and tossing in a lineup for fun with their buddies, where you might in a head-to-head, let's say in a $10 contest. So uh, have you determined that, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you have, but the the higher up, the higher dollar amounts with the less rake will give you a higher ROI in general, because I'm, I'm assuming you can play some pretty big uh, fish in the in the smaller competitions. I thought the same thing too. And then it's really interesting because the like, guy would just go and post like a $5,000 head to head in NASCAR and like someone would take it and they have these things called experience badges where you can see like, if you played a certain amount, you know, it's just sort of distinguished between this and like these people have no experience badge. So either it's someone's like alternate account that is like, you know, trying to trick you into playing them or it's literally just someone who's like, I just want to gamble it up and maybe my best chance of doubling up is to play like, a thousand dollar entry instead of playing a hundred, you know, smaller stakes ones. So it is interesting, but you do see a lot of the same people over and over and over again. So I think it's a lot of like game selection, but then for some reason, like I hate tennis, but it's really interesting DFS wise. And like the lineups sometimes you see are just so ridiculous in the higher stakes. And it's like, are these people is like money laundering or is it, am I just stupid and don't understand why this is happening? Right. The same thing with the NASCAR thing. It's like, why like Talladega was last week and one of the strategies in Talladega is you play people from the back because there's a lot of accidents and you know there's a very big disadvantage playing people up front and I had like a ten thousand dollar head-to-head against some guy who started everybody in the top 10 and I'm like that is really interesting you know like so it's a weird thing so I feel like you do get a lot of just like random people who just want to gamble it up and whether they're doing like credit card fraud or some crazy you know like thing or they're just one of rush of just playing a $10,000 head to head. But then there are a lot of, you play the same people over and over and over again. You're just basically swapping the thousand dollars back and forth minus the rake, you know, and then I don't know, I haven't been doing like, I've only been doing it for a year. So I don't know if there's enough of those. I'm just going to drop $10,000 randomly people. Cause then the other problem is like, sometimes they still do win, even though they might have a crappy thing. And then do they take that money and run or do they take that money and just lose it all? So I found one of the things is whenever someone wins like a millionaire maker, they'll drop like $100,000 in the higher stakes cash games really easily. You know, the idea of like, now I'm a bankroll, I can play these high stakes games and then they're like running to what they're on. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, but 
I'm yeah. Not sure completely. Well, I would be shocked if if DraftKings and FanDuel didn't have some sort of retention programs in place to make sure that that money stays in the account as long as they can. I think that kind of plays into it a little bit. You see the same thing with sports books, obviously, right? Um, the dirty ones will, who really restrict you on withdrawals after a big win, or they'll give you like the we'll pay you out this amount as a, as a show of good faith at the beginning, but it's going to take you this long to get the rest type of thing. So that doesn't surprise me at all. And, and I do think that there's an element of just like the, the whales that are, are just looking for like, that is their entertainment value. It just comes at a much larger stake in general. Um, I, I, you know, I do a lot of, of crossing with, with other people on sports betting so that I don't have to pay a VIG in general. And there's been plenty of times where I have people coming in with big bets where at first I'm like, who is this person? Like, why, you know, do they have something that I don't? And you, you very quickly realize that this is just someone who's looking for a bet on the game and this is what's going to excite them. And, uh, and I think that's like, I, I do think that that happens in, in the DFS community quite a bit. It used to happen a lot too. And so in two plus two, the poker form, and there were people who were swapping like 10 K bets and they're poker players. And I know, you know, like from seeing the bets and stuff, they're basically just betting pure emotion, these types of things. And it's like they have a lot of money from poker. So they'll have immediately they're experts in, you know, sports betting, too, because it's another gambling space. And you're seeing that a lot now, too, with like a lot of people transitioning from DSS to sports betting. And like they could be experts in one space, but that doesn't give them the expertise in the other. But they're still painting themselves as experts and people are buying into it and all this stuff. So, yeah, it's. People just seem to have an insane amount of money. I don't know where they get it from. NFTs. Everyone's rich <laughs> from Bitcoin. Like everyone's a millionaire apparently. I don't know where everyone's getting it from. But well, you're la- you're laughing about that. So let- let's broach that subject. So I-, I take it from the way that you you're you know you've stated that that you're you're not a um, like an early adopter of crypto. Was that would that be correct? Um, Early adopter in the sense that like, well, some sports books were crypto only for a long time and it just happened that like it blew up like crazy. And so my balances would triple or quadruple without even me winning a bet, which was really amazing. But no, I think I have like the worst luck ever where, so every Monday I would withdraw from bookmaker, you know, whatever they let like 10,000, 20, whatever their limit of the week is and those changes. And like literally every time I would get said Bitcoin, the price would crash. And to the point where like I was realizing, I think what's happening is on Monday morning, there's always some people dumping it for some reason that's causing the price to go down. So I was like, I'll only withdraw on Tuesday now. And it was working out really great. And then I withdrew and it was like one of the biggest crashes in history occurred on a Tuesday. And I'm just like, I don't understand how whatever one hour period I withdraw and sit and wait for it, it never works out. So not really big in that sense, like made money by just pure luck of like, you know, you have balances just sitting there. Like sometimes you withdraw from a sports book and I pay you in Bitcoin. You just don't convert it fast enough. So no, more of the traditional. So my big sort of dumb luck point was, um, so after I moved away from Montana because Pinnacle stopped accepting the United States, um, the world was in a huge recession. And I went back to Vegas and you can literally buy like a single family home for $40,000 cash. And so I'm sitting with tons of cash because I have my bankroll of like, it's like in that range of like four to five million at the time. And I just took 60% of it and just bought houses all over Vegas. And so like diversified in that sense. And I think that's something that's really maybe hard for people is realizing that like the first thing you want to do is when you get money and secure your future. So like secured my future by buying these houses. And then also the stock market was at like huge lows then because the world was being destroyed. And well, I'll just start investing in the stock market. That thing always goes up, right? Like, you know, so 
a lot of these weird things that happened to me has been like fortune time, but I think it's also just recognizing that like, hey, maybe this isn't going to work forever. And if it does, that's great. But also like maybe try to diversify outside of gambling. So like one of the things I just got also dumb lucky at was like buying land. So just buying like empty tracts of land. So my strategy was, okay, Austin is seeming like it has a huge increase in population. What are some farm areas outside of Austin? Buy that, buy that, that, that. And then what happens is then the city migration, the suburbs and the developers call and they're like, can we buy your land? Right. So like just a lot of diversifying in the more traditional sense for people now, I wouldn't actually advise it because real estate is broken right now and you were not going to make any money if you, you know, so like, so maybe crypto is the 2010 version of me buying real estate, you know, like I just don't understand it enough because it seems like it's only purpose is to buy drugs and to gamble, which are really cool things. But like, Anytime they try to use it to like, I remember Domino's Pizza was like trying to accept cryptocurrency for a while and it was costing like $97 to buy, a, you know, like it just doesn't seem integrated well, but it maybe like we'll get to a point eventually where it will be integrated well that I can see value in it. But no, I'm, I'm stupid in the crypto sense. Right. Like NFTs, I'm, like, yeah. No, I could go, go ahead. Like, I, I mean, NFTs, you've obviously, you, you've, I mean, you'd, you'd be living under a rock if you, if you didn't realize they're very trendy right now and they're blowing up like i mean is, is that is that something that piques your interest at all like i'm gonna learn what an F- nft is type of thing i want to see what's going on with with top shots and crypto punks or or is it just like meh you know i've i made my money at this point uh I, i'm just gonna continue on doing what i do so i would be interested if the people touting it weren't people that i didn't trust so like I know I see you have the crypto punk. So I think there is probably some value in it, but like with the top shots, like when my timeline got spammed by these people about top shots, and I was like, Well, I know that person's not trustworthy, that person's not trust you know, and I'm just like Get some names, see- AD. We want to fuel the fire. No, no, I'm not gonna <laughs> But I mean like there are people who have large followings and it just seems like a little suspect. Like if I hold stock, I can't go on Twitter and promote my stock. Uh, the SEC will investigate me, right? I can't be like buy stock X, Y, Z, and then I'm holding a million shares of it. And then I dump it all. And I felt like when you look through the transaction history, so all that stuff is public of the top shots things. And people are like, I'm in it for value. I'm in it for value. Long-term, long-term, long-term. And then you see like sold, 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 sold. And I'm like, huh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, me and Johnny, that me and Johnny were doing that for weeks where we basically tracked top shots accounts to specific people who were really promoting them and then we kind of realized when they were selling off and we we just kind of followed at that point or at least we were we were very much aware of who were the biggest promoters in the top shot space and what they were doing on a day-to-day basis um so it wasn't just like a dumb investment on our part or anything like that and crypto punks like I have price alerts set like 24-7. I see anytime something goes on sale, what the the floor price is on, on that stuff. But I completely get it. I mean, it, it, you know, you, you hit, you sort of hit on your investments years ago and you, you might refer to it as dumb luck, but, um, and you did refer to it as dumb luck. But I, I actually like listening you, to you tell that story. To me, that's not dumb luck at all. Like that was very much a calculated strategy and plan like listening to you talk about why you invested in land in Austin that's just not like random there's some sort of strategy behind it and yeah it takes some level of luck for it to hit you know to what it is but um i i think that uh you know i i can tell that 
just by the way that you think in general, you're a pretty, pretty savvy guy. And, uh, uh, I just was interested in picking your brain on, I guess the, the more trendier investments nowadays, but, um, we could talk to you all day. I, I would talk to you all day. I hope we could actually talk to you again at some point, but there's a couple things that I for sure have to fit into this podcast because they are frequently talked about in the, um, sports betting community. Me and Johnny don't always agree on these items either, but I'm very interested in your take on closing line value because you've made recent references on Twitter about not really caring about closing line value. I've, I've seen it in the RASP Slack as well uh, in the past. But if I go back to some past searches of your posts on the, the you know two, 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 two by two forums and whatever, um, you at one point did care about getting the best of the number. At least you did reference that. So, I mean, are you, you do have a dry humor. So I actually can't tell if you're serious or sarcastic sometimes on Twitter. It's not really the greatest avenue in general to tell what someone is feeling. But I guess, do you believe in closing line value? Do you track it? If not, did you at one point and what has changed for you since then? Yeah. So when I first started, I believed that it was like the ultimate goal. Like you, if you got closing line value, you're a winner. And I feel like Maybe I should participate more in the markets. Maybe my view has changed. So I understand the idea that um, the market's efficient. It's, it's Everyone has access to the same information, blah, blah, blah. But I feel like the one mistake that people make is that they observe that the market is frequently efficient in the sense that like Vegas knows, you know, like how does a total always end up within one point or something along those lines? And they sort of conclude that that means the market is always efficient. So it's sort of like this weird thing that like sometimes efficient or even mostly efficient or frequently efficient versus always efficient. And I feel like, okay, so why would the market not be efficient? So from my point of view, if I'm betting late into the market, well, I'm probably moving the market, right? Or uh, one example from golf today that's really interesting is there's a big thing, uh, Chase Seifert versus Adam Long. So like someone went and made it their big pick of the week and the it really moved against and I was betting it back. And then it was interesting because then like I thought I'm on the right side. And then last night, all of a sudden steam really came against me. And it was interesting because like the steam was on bookmakers. So obviously I'm going to value it more. So I tried to understand like what is happening here. Like why there's something that I perceive as a really good bet now in a mark in a sports book where I actually respect more of the line movements, what is happening here and why is it moving so much against me? I think trying to understand like why things are happening is it's hard to do, but it might be important. So I was thinking like maybe they'll value, they're valuing this more and I'm valuing this differently. And I feel like that's one of the interesting things is like, I think understanding the market and how and why it moves is more important than closing line value because like maybe people will just run out of money or they have enough, they're over diversified on the market enough and they don't want to bet anymore, or they're not processing the information the same. So in golf, a really big sort of system that people use is strokes gained. So there's a famous site, Data Golf, and they're really, really heavy on strokes gained. And they really look at it absent of other information to the point where I think they realize it is put this long blog post about like what they're changing and so forth. But a lot of people adopt similar approaches. And I adopt maybe a slightly different approach. So it's tough because like sometimes I don't get closing line value. And I think it's because they're maybe over emphasizing things like strokes gained in not considering in context. And I could be completely wrong in those cases. Or maybe another example would be literally for the first two months of golf this year, 
you know, I bet like 600,000 on a typical PGA weekend and maybe like 200,000 on Euro. And I got zero closing line value for every tournament, but I was crushing. And I was just like, wow, I'm running really good. And then in a Slack chat, I was just like, normally I do is when I bet it enough in the sense that like I've met my utility of like risk and so forth. I'm like, if there's still value, I'll give it to people. And like, hey, if you want to bet this, bet this. And since like everything was moving against me, I posted like 12 picks or something. And then uh, Rufus, who is a big golf guy, DM'd me and he's like, I'm on the opposite side of every one of these picks. And I was like, that's interesting. Um, and normally, like when it says that people would be like, oh, I'm completely wrong. But I was just more interested in like, that seems a little weird because like, I'm sure we differ on other things, but 12 versus one, you know, 12 disagreements. And then the next week he made a Twitter post about how he found an error in his golf model and he was betting wrong for like two months. So, and it was really interesting because then someone commented, it's like, did you get closing line value? He's like, yes. And it's like, okay. And I know golf is not like a huge market, but they do take $10,000, right, um, Max? So like sometimes you might have irrational actors in the skewing these types of things. I think the other thing too is that we don't think that like, if you're thinking about financial markets and efficient market hypothesis, well, with the whole sports books are probably the biggest bettors out there. So it's tough to know, like, why is the line moving? Is the line moving because maybe bookmaker really wants to take a big position on this, so they're going to make it more attractive for people to take this other side? Or is maybe bookmaker not moving, even though they're getting tons of action on one side because they're happy being on the other side? So, like, I've never been on the other side of sports books, so I don't know how much they value, like, certain things. Like, because I know sometimes I'll make golf bets and they'll move, like, 20 cents instantly. And then sometimes it will move instantly on the auto mover and move right back. And I'm like, wait, why did you respect that bet? But not this one, right? Like what is going on there? Um, so I feel like trying to understand why things happening is sort of a big problem. And, um, you know, and if you're chasing steam, then I understand why you're using closing line value. But then the problem is if you're chasing steam, you're always going to get closing line value. So you're going to look much better than you actually are. And then it sort of becomes this idea of like, how do you improve yourself? And then how do you know then what happens when the steam goes one way and then 30 seconds before tip off, it goes the other way, which one was the right steam? You know, like, so I feel like there's a lot of things that you need to infer and like, I don't know. And then people are always like, well, I did this because syndicate XYZ was on this and I found out by blah, 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 blah. So I just feel like it's a metric, but I feel like if you're originating or betting a model, you have better metrics to measure success. Like I can run my golf model and then I can see what happened in the thing and I can calculate, well, did what I think was going to happen, happen or not. Right. And I can use statistical tests to determine what's going on there. So I feel like just pigeonholing yourself into one statistic, which you don't really control is really problematic in the sense of like trying to become a better, better. Um, because if it fails, you're like, well, I got the best of the number. Well, you know, how can I improve? I'll just try again, try again, try again, try again. So it's sort of along those lines. And I feel like a better thing is trying to understand the market you participate in. So to go back to the golf example, um, data golf has a huge influence on the early markets. I know I, I listened to a podcast where they said they didn't have a huge influence on the market, but they don't capture the opening line. So if you capture like Pinnacle's open line, the second they open, within 15 minutes, they move towards what data golf think is, thinks is fair. So this is a, sort of a newer phenomenon in the market that really started post-COVID when golf was really the only thing to bet. Um, 
So what does that do for me? So as a result, when numbers come out, I parse my bets into two categories, those that agree with the data golf model and those that disagree with the data golf model. The ones that agree, I will bet right away because I know the value is going to be on. The ones that disagree, what I do is I wait until Tuesday afternoon and I start betting the opposite side. And then you get people who believe in the model or maybe have similar models themselves and you get the pushback. So even though the limits are smaller, like 500 or $1,000, you're getting sort of a lot of action because people are believing in the, the model that the website's putting out. And you can get in like five, six, seven bets. And then what happens is when Bookmaker puts their lines out around Tuesday night, the entire market moves towards what Bookmaker has, regardless of what DataGolf says. So like understanding how the market operates there really is important. And then if I have value against what I think is bookmaker lines, I'll bet that. And it doesn't matter when you bet it because they open at 10,000, they close at 10,000. So I feel like that is more important than focusing on like, you know, oh, this line moved two cents or this line moved three cents, because these are things that I understand why they're moving. I understand these lines are moving to this point because a lot of people are believing in data golf. And then I'm able to manipulate that by betting the opposite on the ones that I don't agree. And then I know at a certain time when Bookmaker comes out, everything's going to move to Bookmaker. So I need to make sure that I do this in this period. Otherwise, I'm going to lose that on potential value fading the data golf model. So I think one of the questions you asked me when we first, like way, like a year ago, was like, well, why do you post them on Twitter? And it was more like really boredom, but I would only post the ones that I agreed with with data golf. And then people can pick them off at PPHs if they want, right? So like wasn't giving away anything that would really hurt my value long-term, but it was more, you know, hey, build community, help people out, maybe get more people interested in golf. But I really stopped because I just get like a thousand DMs of like, what are the picks today? What are the picks today? And I'm like, oh, please stop. Yeah. Yeah, since we started this podcast, I, I actually get DMs to the bet stamp account now asking for picks, yes. which is even funnier. <laughs> um, actually, so I, you, I, sorry, go ahead, AD. Oh, it's not, you have a lot of power because you're on the back end, so you can actually see things and then, you know what you can probably make an aggregate of like these people are profitable betters and then you can see what they're on and you can actually use that to benefit yourself so i think that's a really powerful tool if you're thinking about like another thing that you could yeah it it is but we're trying to be as transparent as possible it's the real it's the reason that notifications come out in real time like if i log a bet on betstamp the notification is going to go out immediately because we don't we don't want to be known as a brand that does that like that's not the point of it it's more so to be authentic, to have authentic record keeping, to, to really be like a voice in the industry that where someone says, you know, this is a verified true record of someone rather than leveraging it for, I mean, both myself and Johnny, we, we win at betting on sports. I'm sure we could leverage that in some capacity in order to build something out where, I mean, it would be a lot easier to win at, at sports in that case if there was enough people. It's no different than like what some exchanges do in general, right? And how they profile betters. So, uh, but it's, it's not really a long-term goal. That's, that's actually like, if you're talking about sportsbook, like Tony from five dimes, that's what he used to do is he would just accept bets and go bet him somewhere else, you know, like type thing. So, but yeah, that makes sense. That's more transparent and nice. I was thinking. So I yeah. Sorry, I need to cut you off. I want to submit no. a, a challenge if I may right now on the closing line value debate. So I, I agree with almost everything you said there. Um, in regards to golf, I think for anyone listening right now, the main thing you can draw from listening to that whole conversation and re rewind it if you need to, is that um, knowing when the market opens limits, uh, knowing when certain people are coming in, finding the trends like that he just mentioned in the sense of like, you know, data golf is moving first, then Chris is moving, then Rufus is coming, is, is moving, like whatever it might be, outlining those trends 
in some cases is more important than what you're actually originating because it's your ability to get down at certain numbers. You can, you know, especially for someone like golf, like you're talking like 20, 30 cent differences in your pricing, which is ultimately enough to overcome the VIC. So I think that's the main point I want to stress for the listeners like that go back and listen to that because it's extremely valuable. But what I wanted to challenge on closing line value was you mentioned, um, you know, in regards to steam chasing, like how do you know which steam is coming in? And, and with your models, you're saying you're originating and you're crushing. And over the past six months, you have zero closing line value. So this is, I'm going to quote an argument from, from Spanky. It's not an original argument from me, although I do believe in this. And what he said on one of his podcast episodes, and I've talked to him in person about this as well, is if you don't have closing line value, um, you will eventually, and you win, you will eventually get closing line value. So essentially it's kind of like a, a flow chart. If you were to look at it, it's that beating the close means you're going to win. And if you can win without beating the close, eventually you will beat the close. So what, what you're saying is you're betting at bookmaker limits. Uh, you've taken off enough that you've taken off enough that you now reach your risk tolerance and you know, you're just giving those plays out for free. But if you are winning long-term on those, which you seem to be right now, eventually consider it as like a, a formula with your bankroll. So right now your risk tolerance is X based on X bankroll. If you're doubling that bankroll, now your risk tolerance is X times two. So now you can bet more into bookmaker. Eventually it comes to a point where bookmaker is going to respect who's winning and not necessarily the market. So in, you know, a three, six, even a one year sample, uh, you can win without getting closing line value. Uh, and obviously there's other ways to mask this, such as, you know, betting uh, beards, syndicate groups, PPHs and stuff like that. But for someone like you, who's betting directly into, you know, bookmaker, as you mentioned, don't you think eventually um, you will start to see that closing line value if the results continue as they have been? Yeah. So I think maybe the problem too is speaking in absolutes. So like I do get closing line value a lot. Right. And it's not in every situation though. So I feel like it's interesting because you could have two people like, Roof is obviously successful in golf. I've been successful in golf. Um, Brett Favre, four for four, very successful in golf. But I feel like maybe we align on like 80, 90%. And then what happens with that 10% where two people who can be successful disagree, then how do they choose which one is more sort of valuable in that situation, right? And I feel like that's something that like, I think multiple people could be successful, but disagree a lot too. Um, you know, it's not like, if me and you are really successful in betting um, some sport, we're going to agree 100% of the time. And I think we could still be long-term winners, right? So I think that's one of the issues too is where it comes in is like there's a lot of variables that like I don't understand like why they choose to sometimes when I bet baseball right before tip-off, they'll move like 20 cents and other times it won't move at all. And it's like, well, I've been winning at baseball bookmaker for like 15 years. Why did this one not why do you care about this one, right? So like, I think that's a lot of things that I don't understand. But yeah, I agree that like, yeah, eventually they do respect more. And you could see it too. Like I've been getting more into tennis and like this morning I bet something for Max on Bookmaker and they literally didn't move. And I'm like, how am I betting $2,500 into a women's tennis match round one and it's not moving? And it's because I've lost like $30,000 in tennis in the last week, right? Like, and I've never shown any profit. So I can understand like that point of view, like, okay, we'll take the city gets money in tennis. But then, yeah, it's tough because I don't understand that in the sense of like why sometimes it'll move and sometimes it wouldn't. Um, and then, yeah, so I agree too. But yeah, I feel like we was talking absolutes, like you always need to get closing line value or 
it doesn't matter. And I feel like it's somewhere in the middle. Like, yes, if you're never getting closing line value, something's wrong. I don't think you're like a unicorn outlier that is like existing in this market here, right? But I feel like also sometimes there is overreactions and herd mentality present in the market. So maybe an example would be yesterday, um, Miami Marlins, they were pretty favored. They're like minus 120. And then um, Chisholm was out. And all of a sudden, insane amount of steam came against them. And it's like, it went to the point where like, I think Miami closed at like 105. So I was betting like 110. And it would go back. And then eventually 100 and it go back to 105. But like, I don't know, the herd mentality around this one player being out really sort of drove the market insane in the one direction to the point where it's like, I didn't get closing a valley in a one, but like, was I wrong? Because maybe I didn't overreact as much to the player being out or was I right in that? Like I didn't overreact as much of the player being out. And I feel like those things are so hard to quantify because it's such a one-time event in history that like, how do you judge it? And it's like, I can judge it by like, I made money or I can judge it by that closing line value. And sometimes they disagree with each other. Right. And it's like, Oh no, what do you do? Which is more valuable. I mean, I prefer the money, but I understand the idea behind the closing line value one too. Yeah. Yeah. And I get your, your point on steam chasing because, for example, it's not going to be efficient for every single market. If you were to have steam chased on the NFL draft, and I know the draft, we're recording this on Thursday, so the draft's tonight and this podcast will be out after it. But if you had steam chased the third overall pick, you would probably have big positions on all three of Mac Jones, Fields, and Trey Lance at probably minus 160 a side. So I, I get it, and I, I know it's not always, uh, you know, can't be an absolute. So I agree with you there. And yeah. And I- like, okay. Go ahead, Eddie. Go ahead. I was saying, like, in different parts of the year, it's interesting because, like, I think we started talking in the beginning about NBA, and, like, I'll bet NBA full game sides and totals in the first month of the year. And those things are moving by 10 points, like the totals, especially now in this COVID era. And then there was, like, three months where the NBA totals literally didn't move unless there was, like, some injury news. And then after the All-Star break, teams started tanking and not caring, and now the market's going crazy again. And it's kind of like the market, and same thing with the second half market is, like, I'm very big on rotations and coach tendencies and so forth. I feel like I have value in the second heart quarters there and I've been doing really good, but a lot of times it moves against me and it's kind of hard because like things like coach tendencies are not easily quantifiable. Like I can show evidence that I suggest that like golden state is not going to start a wise man or something. Right. Like, cause the coach said that and then they make him play like 30 minutes and I look like an idiot or like I can really sort of use like, okay, well, it looks like when Steph Curry plays or when LeBron plays with Harrell versus AD, he obviously really sucks when he plays with Montrezl Harrell and he much better when he plays with Anthony Davis, but he takes on different roles and so forth. So like, I feel like a lot of those things are more qualitative things that like maybe I'm interpreting them differently and it could be wrong or it could be right. But I feel like then the market catches up and then things change. Like in sports, I don't feel like it's static, you know, like, um, but yeah, I don't know. You're, you're obviously an originator yeah. um, in this stuff, but I was going to say, you mentioned like market moving stuff like that. What are your thoughts then on the whole, the whole, I guess we'll call it steam chasing or as people want to call it the top down approach. What What are your thoughts there? Cause I, I've read some of your tweets on it. It's very interesting. It's tough because like, I don't have a problem with steam chasing in general. Actually I prefer it because sometimes if I'm on the other side, Hey, you can get better numbers. You can get more money down. Right. But I think I just more, concerned with like that people act like they're doing something that's really that hard and special and like that they deserve like hey look at me i'm a genius and it's like people have been steam chasing for like ever like before the offshores everyone would just sort of have the sbr full odd screen up or like don best it's like it's not a new thing but then i just feel like it's a little short-sighted because like and again how do you improve 
do chase steam better, right? Like it's sort of like one of these things I feel like just limits your ability and growth. And like for me, okay, I started this by telling I isolated myself in a Montana cabin for two years, which is a horrible life choice. But also I think sitting in front of a computer, staring at Don's best screen for 16 hours a day is also, and then acting like Pavlov's dog, like the second the screen lights up, like trying to get as much down. It's also like, why would you choose that lifestyle? But then also like, I did choose a horrible lifestyle to start out my bidding career too. So like, but yeah, I just feel like it's undued um, accolades. Like you're not uh, using any knowledge outside of like, I'm clicking buttons and putting faith in sort of the Steve movement thing. And from my personal thing, like I do manipulate some markets and I see people like, steam chasing off that. And I'm like, no, I'm doing this for a different reason. So one example might be, um, so NASCAR. So I usually post NASCAR two wins on Tuesday on my Twitter account. And the reason I do it is because I can't bet on DraftKings and people can move the DraftKings market for me. And why would I want that to happen? Well, because I play NASCAR DFS and NASCAR sets their salary prices based off the twin market on Wednesday night. So if I see, some, so I, I kind of have an idea of what their formula is for setting the salary prices. So by getting people to move the DraftKings markets, and I would never give out like a negative EV bet. These are, I think, really good bets, but these are like obvious plays, right? And then if the salary is really low, it's going to become an obvious cash game play on DraftKings, and then it's going to sort of make it into a five versus five instead of six versus six. And I feel like I have a more advantage in the six versus six. So like there are ways to manipulate markets like that. The other thing was, so five dimes, a lot of people think that five dimes used to originate NASCAR, but they would copy Vegas. And then what happens is the day before the race, five times, they do this for everything. They do this for like Japanese golf, all these obscure markets they offer. They look at the to win markets and they just take two golfers or two NASCAR drivers who have very close to win odds and put them head to head and put like minus 110 or minus 115 on each side. So once I figured out they were doing this, I had a friend who had a five dimes account and I was like, okay, bet these futures markets and manipulate them. And then what five dimes is going to do is they're going to open up a head to head with them for minus 110. And it would only take like $50 to move the market. And then so some people might think like, why the heck would you do that to bet $125 into a head-to-head market? Well, then what happens is since Five Dimes is the only one that really posts NASCAR, every other book copies them. Bet Online copies them. And then during COVID, they were copying these horrible lines that we were setting up and putting $2,500 limits on them. So like in smaller markets, I can understand this. Like people are doing things for other reasons behind this and people are chasing steam or reading into it. And it's always funny because sometimes I read like NASCAR DFS articles and they're like, this driver moved from this odds to win and this odds to win. That must mean he's really good. I'm like, no, we're doing that because I wanted to get a really good head to heads odd on these two drivers. And then I want to bet online to copy five dimes and offer $2,500 limits on it because they don't know what they're doing. They're not really bookmakers. Right. And so, like, I feel like there's a lot of those things also going on in other markets, too. Like, how do I know someone's not hedging something out, right? Or how do I know someone is just, like, had a really horrible day? I'm sure we've all done this where, like, you just lose literally every bet and you're like, screw it. I'm going to bet $25,000 on something random, right? Like, I know that's a degeneracy thing, but we've all (laughs) done it. I mean, we can all admit that we've done something stupid (laughs) like that, right? And then how do I know that this person that was maybe really smart is just like tilting off their ass and betting something stupid and moving the market, right? So like I understand like markets and all that, the closing value. And it's just like I think I have personally better metrics to measure my success. And I understand like if you're just doing these other things, then that closing line is like all you have. So you would use it as like a big, you know, thing. So I don't think it's bad per se, but I feel like if you have better metrics, you should probably use those things. 
Right. I, I mean, there, there's so much to unpack there. I, I mean, it kind of comes full circle in this interview because earlier on you were you were kind of talking about how people think that having a model, you just kind of click a button and you just go place the bets. And it's really not that. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you shared those specific examples of how there's it's like a game within a game type of thing um, where, I mean, one of the the constant goals for a successful sports better is to be able to get down as much money as they can on specific markets where they have major edges. And that's not easy in this day and age. Uh, and you have to get creative sometimes. So I think that was a really good example. And I think you're bang on with the closing line value um, because I believe in closing line value, but I don't think it's like this absolute, right? Like you need to beat every price. If you're not winning, sh- I-, I can speak from personal experience where I'm 99% sure that I was using data for a sport that the market was not using, which gave me a competitive advantage. So anytime I would bet something, it would get blown up right back in my face pretty quickly. But I think I was using more sophisticated data, so I didn't care. And I was winning at that sport on that sport. So for me, like, yeah, like what's the purpose of closing line value there when I'm fairly confident that what I'm doing is correct and that I'm, I'm have better data that I'm working with. So that's just one example, but I think it's, it is concerning over time if you're not doing something like that and you're consistently betting at numbers where, you know, you're just, you're ending up with negative expected value. I think that's when you have a legitimate concern and somebody who's more of a recreational better has to step back and say, either I'm just going to do this for fun with the expectation of losing, or I'm going to have to try to refine my craft and try to figure something out here so that eventually the market starts moving my way. I guess from your, both your ends, do you ever consider something like, like I can, I'm not the best NFL better, but I can get closing line value if I bet on Monday, if I bet on Tuesday, because sometimes there are like not obvious things, but like if you're looking at the data, you can sort of beat the market by like one point or two points. And like that closing line value, would you weigh that the same as me betting on Saturday night and getting a closing line value or Sunday morning or it's it's tricky because you're 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 an exception, right? A D like you're you're betting at bet sizes that I mean, frankly, I'm a professional better. Johnny's a professional better. We don't we don't sniff the bet sizes that that you're getting down at right now. Like you're you're popping bookmaker limits like full limits over and over and over, even if the market moves against you, I dream of doing that. Like I, I don't do that personally. That's, that's above my head. So for me, it, it comes down to like an expected value calculation, right? I can figure out what I can get down on a Monday in the NFL. And if that's going to, you know, I can figure out likely what my, my expected value is going to be on that bet versus if I'm betting later in the week and I make my decisions based off of that. But I still value the closing line value equally depending because, I mean, I have to use that in my calculation essentially. Yeah, I would, I would value it equal. So Saturday, a Saturday edge versus a Monday edge, whatever the closing line value is on that, um, whether it be, you know, if it's 4% uh, VIG free, then I would say for a market like NFL, like million bet sample size, you should be expecting to earn 4%. Now I know it, a lot of people disagree with that. Um, personally, this is how I have made money in the past. Um, this is how a lot of people I know who win have made money in the past. If you beat the close, you can quantify your edge in the major market. So I'll even throw out, like obviously NASCAR, you got to throw out. I would even throw out golf. I would even go as far as to say, potentially, if you're looking at something like NBA totals or NHL totals, you, you maybe it's a little smaller. But something like NFL sides, um, where there's just so much money being bet into it, like the day of the game for like a prime time game, for example, like bookmaker, Chris Pinnacle, they're, they're taking 
like hundred grand. They're taking a hundred grand before game in some of these games. Um, and you could rebet that and they don't move on that. So when I see stuff like that and the whole world is painted a certain number, like it's pretty easy for me to say, yeah, this is my edge and I'll quantify it as is. So that's my answer. I know some people disagree, but for major markets like that, I don't really see how, um, like if, if you did have an edge against the NFL closing line, you literally are, you're a billionaire. You know what I mean? Right. But I, you know, to get back to, so what I wanted to unpack from what AD said, just in general is I think it's definitely dependent on the market and really trying to understand and knowing what's going on in that market is going to be beneficial. Like for golf, as an example, I, I can't confirm this. You know, you know I, I'm friends with Rufus. He will never admit this to me. I don't think he's ever admitted it publicly, but obviously he is going to have a major impact on what the line is at Chris, right? Whether he's betting into it early or he's providing them with numbers, there it's whatever he bets on, he's going to end up with very good closing line value. I remember running into him at Sloan last year and it was either a Thursday or Friday. We're Friday, I think, looking through our golf bets and he's reading his out loud and I'm on the opposite of every single one. That's why your story hit home with me, AD, about him being on the opposites because he he bet lines that were like 40 cents different than than what I ended up betting. And the you know the true line probably lied somewhere right in between both of our numbers. Uh, and I think that happens with the golf market. The NFL market, like, I, I don't know what, what Joey Toons is betting as an example, right? But as soon as he bets a play, he, he might be using a Pinnacle account or a Chris account that is moving off of a small amount of action, 5000 bucks, 10000 bucks, whatever, even if it's on a Sunday morning, where his bet is going to heavily influence that closing number just in general because he's known to bet on on the morning of a game 11 30 12 o'clock an hour before kickoff so at what point does does that matter that's one person's opinion where the numbers stay the entire at the same spot from friday saturday sunday up until noon and then all of a sudden one person goes and bets it the the line moves a point a point and a half and it's like okay do, do i care like does that matter to me and in most cases, the reality is yes. I'm not going to get into this, you know, this situation of breaking down every single bet that went against me and why it did and whatever. But having some understanding of the way that that market works, uh, whether somebody's just faking a number and propping a number up so that they can get a, a better price off screen on the other side, like this kind of stuff happens all all the time. So uh, I, I think it has to be taken with a grain of salt. But if you are just kind of bringing it you know, back to like a high level and you're trying to educate a recreational better, someone who's new to the space, doesn't understand this stuff. I don't think you're doing harm to them by telling them in the long run, you want to beat the close. Maybe to add to your myth versus sports betting myths that you have that little segment, if I can add one thing too, is that I always see on Twitter that like, if you bet into Monday openers, you're not a real better. If you bet into Tuesday, you're not a real better. And this NFL example, I think, is really interesting because, like, on Monday, if I want, I can get, like, $10,000 down on an NFL game because there's just so many books and the limits are, like, two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000. And I'm not going to be, like, I'm not a real man. I can't beat NFL on Sunday. I don't know many people who can. I'm sure there are. they are geniuses. I don't think it's worth the effort for me in the sense that, like, I've tried and, like, I run at, like, 0.001% ROI and it's, like, that could be, you know, like, it's not worth it. But like I have a really big ROI betting on Monday and Tuesday and I can get $10,000 down and I don't have to worry about it for the rest of the week. Like I don't have to focus on football. I don't have to pay attention to it and put like 60 hours of work into it. I can do like 10 hours of work on Sunday night and have 
a decent edge, like 4% maybe on openers. And that's good enough because there's like 20 books you can get a decent amount down. So yeah, so if people tell you that like, you're not a real better because you do X, Y, Z, I would just ignore them because, you know, what works for you? And like, you're if you're trying to grow, you're eventually going to get capped and you have to progress. But like, it's still, I mean, I'm betting tons on golf and baseball and basketball. And like, I'm smart enough to know that after one month, I have zero edge on basketball full game total. So I don't mess with it. Like understanding those things and being humble, I think is really an important trait of being a gambler and not just realizing that like I need to fire into MLS on Saturday or whenever the heck they play MLS or not MLS, <laughs> whatever the real soccer leagues are, you know, EP, EPL, I guess. EPL, there you go. MLS is a joke because the lines move like hundred cents. But yeah, so like those ideas, like, yeah. Sorry, do you okay. still uh, dabble in the smaller market stuff then? Um, obviously you, you mentioned like you're betting over half a mil on average and uh, I think you said 200 dimes on Euro golf, which I've, I haven't um, heard of anyone betting those numbers. So are you still betting um, smaller market stuff and dabbling in uh, or is it just not worth the time at this point? Yeah. So like in the last two years, it's interesting because like I never did props ever because I just always, I believed in the idea that like beginners bet props and it's going to burn accounts. And then bookmakers started offering props for NFL like every Sunday. So I got really interested in them. The problem is like, then you have to start getting into the PPH world and dealing with people and getting burned and like not paying out and dealing with all those things. So like in baseball, I do bet like runs scored in first inning, hits, runs, errors. Like those are very common props that have decent size limits, like 500 or a thousand. But it's always interesting when like you go like eight and oh on those and then you lose one money line bet, which is worth like 10 times as much, right? Or like pitchers K's, I think in the um, rash chat Slack thing, I think one day we went like 7-0 on pitcher's Ks, and then I lost like a money line bet, which was like 100 times the, the bet of one of the K things, right? So it's like, oh, great. I'm down 93 units technically. Seven and one like, minus, minus 90% yeah. ROI. The reverse yeah, so tote. Like, That's the opposite of The it. reverse tote, yeah. Yeah. So it's tough. So like sometimes, but I think you get into a weird like time thing. So like, you know, Rob talked about expected value. So I sort of know my expected value of some of these bets. And it's like, is it worth scrolling through a menu for an hour to maybe make 25 or 50 or a hundred dollars? Probably not. But like there are events. So like the Super Bowl, I went to Colorado and I got literally like almost a million dollars down on props. Um, and it was using the shady beard system. So please don't throw me in jail for the wire act or whatever the heck it is. Um, but like, yeah, it was sort of they going to throw in jail. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Yeah, so there you go. Now they're going to subpoena bet stamp for, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, records and stuff like this. But yeah, so it was like, but it was just a tedious process of like, I had two people who were in charge of the money and they found people. And then we paid the people ahead of time to place the bet. So, you know, it was like, a, and it was just like, this is so much work. And versus I can just click a game and, you know, bet $100,000 and it's much easier. Um, so there is that. But sometimes, I mean, there is like, I don't know, does anyone bet props? There is like some emotional value in betting props that I find is fun. Like a pitcher, he needs one more K and then the pitcher spot is coming up. And you're like, oh, no, are they going to pull the picture or not? I feel like that is it gives me like nice emotions, even though it's like for an insignificant amount of money. Versus like I could have way more in the game and not care that much, you know, about these types of things. So it is, I feel like props are like exciting. Whereas betting on like spreads and totals, it's just sort of tedious. So do it sometimes more for entertainment value, less so to like as a money-making endeavor. I think that would be that. Yeah, that's why they've blown, they've popped off is, is the props is because they're so much more fun to watch in a full game. Like, have you ever tried betting on uh, NFL first touchdown props? 
Yes, those are, and then the guy gets stopped at the one yard line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just such a good like when you're when, let's say you have a 49ers player to get the first touchdown, and then they're in the red zone. Like there's no, and those are all at big plus prices usually. So you might have like a, a tight end or a, a receiver at like twenty five hundred or three thousand, and like that's a hilarious, incredible sweat. So yeah, I, I got you. They're definitely there for for fun, and I think that's why those markets have grown. But anyways. We've been on for quite a while. Um, we definitely want to let you go unless, but we do have our, our closing question, but anything, anything before we, we ask that AD? No, I think that's good. And I guess the other thing too, is you can justify yourself. I think sometimes with the props, you can justify yourself that like you're on the right method. If like you predict, so sometimes like you can model a game correctly and just something random happens. But then the idea is if you model like 15 or 16 players in a game and what they did, and it's like all correct. It's like, I feel like that could also be a good indication. So like a lot of people take modeling on a team level basis. I really feel like if you approach a modeling from an individual basis, you can sort of see your flaws in your model and maybe where you're doing good and where you're doing bad. Um, so maybe just one example is there was a Jets Ravens game that was on Thursday night football. Like I think it was like two years ago and the Ravens were like 17 point favorites some crazy amount. And like I ran my model, I did my qualitative analysis and I was like, betting the Jets plus 17. And it was the, I think it was the Sam Darnold seeing ghost game. So obviously it didn't work out, but like, um, and I think the thing is too, is like, then I saw on Twitter. So one of the reasons I bet on the Jets is because I found out that the Jets were really good at defending the run on the right side. So any runs that were going to the right side, they were really good at stopping it. And Mark Ingram was the running back and he always ran to the right side and over their backup running back was running to the right side. So I made my bet and I didn't bet that much, like maybe $20,000 some crazy. And then I saw on Twitter from someone talking about that, like, Lamar Jackson, all his runs are designed to the left side. And without the context of the Jets thing. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm so stupid. Like, I was looking at it through the lens of, like, running backs, and I didn't consider their quarterback as, like, their running back, right? And then so I was like, you know what I'll do? I'll just keep betting Lamar Jackson over props running. And then, like, I ended up getting, like, $3,000, $4,000 on that. And he had, like, 116 yards rushing in the first quarter, and they all went to the left side of where, where I knew the Jets were bad. And it's like, huh, that's interesting. So like, I feel like sometimes by analyzing these props, sometimes it gives me a better understanding of how the full game will go. So I feel like looking at things on the individual level where people are starting out. So starting out with props, I think is a really good place to build towards doing full game modeling because you know, you need the pieces of the game in order to understand the full game. So trying to model the pieces, you get a lot more data and a lot more things, but then, and much faster, yeah. I want to ask you just one more question before yeah. we wrap up with our, our closing question, because um, I think it's really interesting that if you talk to most pros in general or most people that are betting for a living, they're trying to avoid the screen as much as possible. So a lot of people will use Bookmaker, Chris, Pinnacle as kind of like a last resort uh, with the notion of, I, I don't want to give the bookmaker my information because it's going to tighten up the lines next time I go to bed type of thing. Um, you're kind of the opposite, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're admitting to heavily using offshores in general for the majority of your bets. Is that just because you think like the PPH side of thing is just too much of a headache dealing with stiffs and having to meet up with people? Or is it to do with your bet size in general? Like you just can't find an off-screen market that, that large. I'm just curious because, um, it's, it's just like a rare trait for people to want to, you know, want to get down and, and move the screen uh, whenever they're placing big bets. Yeah, and I think part of it is, well, first off, from using PPHs, I got banned from Venmo 
and then I got banned from Apple Pay. So that's <laughs> one negative. First off, is now I'm like blacklisted on banks, which is something that isn't uh might hurt me more down the line. But yeah, I feel like it's that. But also like, I think you reach a certain point where okay, so like everyone's optimize expected value, use Kelly, you know, all these other things. But I really feel the thing that you want to do is optimize expected utility. And sometimes your expected utility may differ from what's maximizing value. So like if I want to maximize the amount of money I make, I'll go get 9 million uh, metallic accounts and post on Twitter all day, come back with me, you know, I'll give you blah, 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 blah. And I feel like that would maximize money, but I'm at the point where like more money won't make me happy, unfortunately, which is kind of sad. Um, I guess it's good, but also like, you know, then why are you still doing this? And it's like, well, nothing else is going on in life. Very bored. This is intellectually stimulating. So like, usually what I do is I bet in Vegas first and there is a disconnect between Vegas and offshores. So moving lines in Vegas does not affect lines in offshore. Test the discipline. So like my usual strategy would bet Vegas first and then bet offshore. But then like, I also just don't want to sit at the computer until 6.59, maybe trying to get five cents better on a line. So if I'm sitting there and I'm like, hey, I just want to go watch some movies tonight. I'll just click the button and bet everything I want to bet and then just go watch the movies and then find out like half the people I bet on like, they, you know, the teams like had COVID or something, something <laughs> you know, screwing everything up. But yeah, so I feel like there's that too. Like, so if you're being serious, you probably want to take approaches to maximize expected value. I'm more trying to maximize my happiness in the sense of like sitting at a computer and waiting to the last second is not a good use of my time. So I'd rather just troll Twitter instead, which is kind of sad, but uh, you know, like things along those lines. So I feel like that. And then sometimes like when baseball first started up again, you know, you get really excited when a new sport starts up. So like I was literally glued to my computer and like had the bet pending and like trying to click it like with five seconds left. And I do stupid things sometimes like I have like five screens open, five sports book and just click like place bet on all of them simultaneously, try to do it as fast as possible. So like there are times, but then other times you're just like, eh, I don't care. It's 5 p.m. It's good enough. I'll just click the button, you know? So yeah, I don't know. Do you feel the same or do you just, are you always like, I need to be there the second it tips off. I mean, I get it. I, it's completely, it, 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 it's just like anything with betting, right? It, it comes down to what you value in general. Um, like for you, it sounds like time is something that's important for you. And you kind of just develop your process over the years and you just stop caring about certain things at other points. For me, you know, I, I, prim I primarily bet the NHL and the NFL. Uh, I'm not betting enough on the NFL that... Um, like I'm a major player in market, uh, but the NHL in general, especially with the way the schedule goes this year, teams are playing each other much more frequently. So if I if I bet a game tonight and I, I hit the screen, those teams are probably playing each other tomorrow or a couple days from now. And guess what? Pinnacle's going to reopen that line with, with what, what it closed at. And I basically have no edge on the second game. So I've kind of had to adapt my my process this year to account for stuff like that. And it's always changing. Like, I mean, your explanation makes logical sense to me. Um, and I think it's just dependent on the per person. I was just more so curious than anything, because it, like I said, it's, it's a little bit more uncommon. People will hit the screen, obviously lines move for a reason, but um, I think they try to avoid it whenever possible. Is it you said that the hockey thing, because like with golf, they do the same thing where they sometimes they'll pair head to heads the same days in a row and they'll use the closing line. But I feel like that's a different scenario because a lot of times we make judgments about how we think the course is going to operate. And sometimes the first round data can give us better insight that like, 
oh shoot, I thought putting wouldn't matter here. And it turns out putting really matters. And now all the information from the first round closing line is sort of maybe embedding this idea that putting doesn't matter. And you could find a lot of value that way. But I, yeah, I don't know with hockey. It seems weird. Cause like, I don't know how much one game would influence another. And I think you talked about this in the podcast with the NHL guy is that like, how much do you weigh? And you said something like if someone goes nine Oh, or maybe he said that if someone goes nine Oh, then that could be a big deal. But if it's like a four, three shootout win, then I'm just going to roll with the same line as the day before. So yeah, this COVID thing has made gambling really interesting. I think it's opened a lot of value too. And also a lot of um, drama yeah. With, yeah, where players get pulled out of the middle of the game with COVID and you're like, what? Yeah. yeah. On your point on the, on the hitting, you know, hitting your bets at maybe 5 PM Eastern instead of seven, not waiting right before the game. I think ultimately like, it's, it just depends on what your goal is, is for this. So you, you obviously, you, you realize you're doing this, but essentially when you're saying, yeah, you know what, why don't I just go watch a couple of movies and shut down for the night? What you're basically saying is that, you know, you have an expected value formula. And at that point, uh, watching the movies and shutting down for the night is worth more than the X amount of expected value you might've made in, in terms of money. So uh, I think that's another good, good, like teaching and lesson for everyone is that, everyone's going to be different in this game. So I, I think I'm uh, from what I can tell, uh, like quite a bit younger than you guys. And so for me, like I value getting the best of the number and making sure I'm always there and always on. And that's maybe because I haven't suffered as much burnout as you guys and stuff like that. But uh, eventually, yeah, it comes to a point where then you, 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 you kind of shift and say, no, now I value this. Now I value this. And obviously it seems like you're at the point where you mentioned you're not more money is not going to make you happier. So, uh, you know, you nailed it on the head with, with saying, yep, this is it. For I wish me. I'm you shut down. Wish you told me that. I wish I understood that this morning because there was a, there's a Euro golf tournament going on right now. And it's at a new course where they haven't played in like, you know, 10 years or 20 years or some crazy amount. So there's no data about it. So I was up at like 3am watching the play by play on bet 365, trying to understand what is important. Therefore, because there's still tournament bets and there's still first round bets that are going and thinking that maybe if I watch like the first three hours of data come in, I might get an advantage on these tournament and first round bets. And it turns out like lucky that the way I modeled it turns out to be how I was playing. And I was like, great. I stayed up to like three in the morning for, you know, nothing. For but, the uh, love of the you know, game. That's what. For. Yeah, for the love, the love of the game. Of the game. Yes. <laughs> All right. We'll wrap it up here, AD. Our final question, uh, which we like to. I mean, we've only given it to one guest so far, but I think it'll be an interesting All one. Of our guests. All of our guests, have, 100% of guests have received this question. Um, if you were to go back five years and talk to a, a previous version of yourself, I guess what piece of betting advice, um, actually doesn't even have to be betting advice, just what piece of advice would you give to uh, the old version of AD? Don't use Twitter. <laughs> so, and I think, and maybe, or use Twitter better in the sense that like, before I started tweeting, like I would just follow certain people that I thought had valuable information and I would get into it. And then the politics stuff started happening where like people were posting sports stuff, start getting politics and I have to start like pruning. But I think the main idea is that like you start caring about things that like I don't really care about. Like if someone wants to sell a half point calculator for $10 a month and they think they can make money off it, why do I care about that? But for some reason, like you get drawn into it when you're on Twitter because like okay, you see the person post about it and you're like, that's stupid. And then you see someone you know comment on, you're like, that's still stupid. And then you see someone comment and someone comment and you're like, okay, now I feel like I should weigh in. 
And the same thing like with the whole like steam chasing thing, like I couldn't care less if someone steam chases, but like when someone's like, look at me, I bought a McLaren because I steam chase, like it, it just, for some reason, like bothers me. And it's like, it shouldn't because they're not in the same space as me. Like, you know, like for people who are doing things that directly affect what I'm doing, then yes, maybe care. But like this stuff does not affect me. Like, why do I care? And I don't, I feel like it's not me. I feel like it's the social media in general. Like I'm sure you've seen documentaries about the effect, but like just be constantly getting fed this over and over and over again. It makes you feel like I do care about this. And it's like, no, really I don't. And it just becomes a time sink and like an emotional time sink too. Also that like, um, I personally don't care about politics, but that's because it's a privilege that being that like I'm in luckily a class where like nothing will bother me. Right. If they raise taxes, it's not going to hurt me. But like, with all the things that were going on, they're like, like, I just started getting like super angry all the time. And like, some of them were for important reasons and some were for like dumb reasons. Right. And the same thing, like the sports betting thing, like I just see myself getting very emotional over things that I don't really care about, but for some reason I feel like I care. So that would be it. So maybe if, if framing in sports betting is like, be more concerned with things that affect you. Don't care so much about what other people are doing who aren't in the same space as you. So like, yeah, someone chasing steam does not affect me. Um, Rufus saying he has a problem with his golf model does affect me because then it gives him some validation to what I was doing in the first two months of the year, you know, type thing. Well said. I mean, um, I think, I think that's just a great lesson because as, as you were talking about it, I was just kind of reliving my experiences over the last month or so of just how much time I've wasted on social media, worrying about things that absolutely do not affect me in any way. Um, it's tough because on a personal level for me, I kind of, I kind of, I can't explain it. it just really bothers me. And I, I can't, I got to figure out how to step away, but maybe uh, I'll replay this segment every now and then to myself, just as a, as a guide to calm myself down in some of these situations. Uh, really, now, really appreciate it. Well, say so now look at you. Now you're going to be in a celebrity boxing match with Jonathan Coachman. So, I mean, like <laughs> now you're like, but it's tough because yeah, like, you being a media personality, like this is the only way you can promote yourself, right? Like you can't not be on Twitter and engage in this stuff because this is the space you need to work in. I feel like it's like working in an office almost. Like if you have anyone, so I've never worked in an office, but if someone ever did, like I'm sure there's all drama going around the office and it's like, I just want to do my work and ignore it. But then you always get drawn into the office drama. You're like gambling Twitter is your office, right? And now you're just getting drawn in. It, it is and it isn't. Like it's it's weird for me because... Like I'm not going after Jonathan Coachman because I'm trying to build a following. Like that's not the intent, and I sincerely mean that. Like people will accuse me of that. Like, oh, you're trying to use the coach to, you know, to bump up yourself and bump your your status. And it's not. It's I'm genuinely bothered by that type of content. It drives me crazy. We talked about this, uh, you know, uh, three or four episodes ago about just the content space and Spanky. You know, whether whether you like him or not. You know, there's a lot of people that do, and there's a lot of people that don't. But he kind of does bring up a valid point that as long as this type of content exists, really good sports bettors are going to have an edge over time, right? We, you kind of need that type of garbage to exist. But I, I just cannot get over it sometimes, and uh, I wish I could explain why. It's just the way that I'm built. But I, I do, um, I am cognizant of the fact that every once in a while, I, I just need to take a step back. So. Um, yeah, I really do appreciate your your time, AD. I mean, we went pretty long, and I, I didn't know how much time you had today, but um, lo- tons of valuable stuff here. And I actually, honestly, 
I could probably could have went another two or three hours with, with stuff I'd wanted to pick your brain about. So maybe we could do this again down the road, but really yeah. appreciate everything. And, um, I, I don't even need to wish you the best of luck. I'm sure you're going to succeed. Like you, no. you're on autopilot at this point, but, but best of luck with everything else uh, anyways in the future. Yeah. And you too and your company, it sounds amazing. Um, and yeah, I think it is valuable, especially too, if you're thinking that like, you know, you say you get angry with this thing, there, there needs to be some accountability in long lines. And I feel like what you guys are doing with the bet stamp can help really establish credibility and accountability outside of the whole, like, you know, Vegas Dave area type thing. So please don't sue me, Vegas Dave. Well, we might have to get you posting some NASCAR plays on there. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, totally. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. Uh, yes, thank you very much. Um, we will, uh, I guess we'll see everybody next week. We may actually, um, it's a good, good, we may be having, may or may not be having on next week, some McLaren driving steam chasing people. So <laughs> we'll have to, we'll, we'll stay tuned for next week and we'll see it and we'll, uh, we'll see if they have the same mentality here. <laughs>